So awesome. I just got back from Oregon. Yes, Coos Bay, Oregon. <laughs> tell, <laughs> tell us tell us about that. Why did you go out there? Uh, Answer for you. <laughs> you, 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 don't, you don't have to. <laughs> Hey guys, what's up? This is Corey Shields on the Southern North Georgia team. On this episode of the podcast, we sat down with my good friend, Austin Carter. Austin travels around a lot for work, but he wants to get into real estate investing. So Michael and I sat down with him. We talked about what he might expect as he gets started, uh, what sort of investments might make sense for him as he gets started. Uh, property management will be critical for him as well since he does travel so much. So stick around for the discussion. Hopefully you can take something away from it and I hope you enjoy it. Anyway, before we were so rudely interrupted by a phone, tell us about Oregon. Why'd you go out there? How was the experience? Uh, the experience was good. Um, I went out there because the wages in my field and the medical field in general have uh, been stagnating for a while now. Um, a lot of the employees are getting stressed out by this because uh, as COVID happened, um, the amount of patients that we have to deal with and the uh, amount of people retiring left vacancies. Um, and the, lo- the workload uh, has not been matched by the amount of compensation that we're getting. Mm-hmm. So a lot of people have decided to kind of uproot and start traveling, which has kind of only made the um, the lacking workforce uh, more lacking. So there's more spots to fill, and the hospitals are having to fill those voids with travelers now, which is creating kind of a... Uh, it's, it's, it's like a more like a a class system now so you have like travelers and then you have full-time employees and the full-time employees don't know why their compensation isn't being uh kind of uh, increased to the point where the travelers are if they can pay for the travelers why don't they just increase the wages for the full-time employees which is a good question (laughs) Um, the answer to that i would say uh it's not my position to answer that but it is uh uh, comes across as unfair to a lot of the employees, and I understand that it was unfair to me. So I uh, took advantage of the market that we're in and decided to do something about it. And just, so, what would it be? Would it be hard for you to do your lab position here, like to find the work here, or was no, it simply like no, no, it no, was no. just way more profitable? Way no. So it? I have this. Uh, it's a personality trait I have. I guess uh, could be seen as uh, detrimental to some people, but I get bored very easily. So uh, about every year I will switch hospitals mm-hmm. and I've worked in three hospitals here. Uh, all, all of them want me to come back because there's vacancies. Mm-hmm. Um, and so it wouldn't be hard for me to find local work, but the income difference is so stark that it would be foolish if I have the opportunity to travel, not to take it. Per percentage wise, like what is what is the stark difference? Uh, I could just tell you numbers. Um, Letter rip, if you want to do yeah, that. Sure, so, let's go. No, no. Uh, be as honest as possible, I guess. So, um, let's see. In my position, we'll we'll just go with the the hospital in Rome that I worked at last. I was making uh, about twenty three dollars an hour, which is fine. Um, and traveling 
uh, I get paid about, this is after taxes and stuff, about $3,000 a week on, <laughs> on the contract assignments. So that's a little uh, bit more. Yeah, it's a little bit more. <laughs> um, it, it's enough for someone to uproot their life and then mm-hmm. um, save up enough to, to start investing if that's the, the route you want to go down. And that's the route you want to go? That's the route I want to go down. I don't have children. I'm not married. Uh, I don't have any debt. So uh, I have all this excess income that I don't know what to do with. And I want to set my future Awesome up problem better. to have. Yeah. <laughs> yes. So um, do you have any idea, like, when you imagine yourself investing, like, what kind of direction you want to go or... Uh, well, I've meandered the thoughts in my head a little bit and, um, I have invested a little bit into cryptocurrency, but you know, the volatility there. And also I don't really know what that is. (laughs) (laughs) I can't really seem to find an answer to what I feel like. It's just a bunch of people who don't really know what it is and just kind of blindly putting their money in it, which is fine. It goes up and down. Uh, you can look at it, but, um, it, it, it's not tangible enough and i still want to invest in that but i don't want that to be like the primary focus i guess i would like something that i can see and that is you know uh giving me a return and appreciating and value and it it has more of a a history of appreciation as opposed to uh something that could be argued as it's trendy and has the possibility of the circling the drain a little bit. I think it makes sense if you're talking about investing to have some volatility mm-hmm. and have some stability. Sure. Yeah. You know, that, that would make the overall portfolio a good investment. Yeah. yeah. So you imagine yourself, you know, building a rental portfolio or do you more attractive attracted to flipping houses or uh, commercial stuff? Well, I am not entirely sure. Uh, I, would like to start off with whatever is the uh, most entry level option possible. Uh, I don't want to get in over my head with any of this stuff. And uh, I guess that's probably one of the things that's kept me from doing it is um, the idea that I have to, uh, you know, deal with the people and, and maintain the property and do all of these things. And it's just kind of, I feel like that's a lot of people though, you know, I feel like that's like, oh, okay, well I have to do something. I don't want to do it. You know, <laughs> they want to be as hands off as possible. Maybe that's why cryptocurrencies are, are so uh, popular because you just can throw money at it and then, you know, you watch whether it goes up or down mm-hmm. um, as opposed to having to really do any legwork. So, um, yeah, I would appreciate any, any insights that I could possibly get on that. Uh, I would say, uh, the first question I have uh, would be um, the type of investment property that you guys would suggest for like a first time, first time buyer of something of that nature. Would you like I know condos are kind of hands off, but you have to pay an HOA fee and maybe they don't appreciate as well as like a single family home or something like that. Would you suggest that as like a first step? because it is a bit more hands-off and you don't have to worry about maintaining it as much? Well, that's a really good question. What is the first step? The first step that we tell every buyer, whether you're a homeowner that wants to move into the house as your primary residence or whether you're an investor, the first step really is how do we pay for it? And then once we can answer that question, 
then we kind of know which direction we need to go. So most people that come to us with the question that you're coming with come from a little different place. You said that um, you don't have any children, you don't have a wife, you've got some money and you want to put it somewhere. Most of the people that come to us have some form of family or don't have any money. And so, so then we have to try to devise a plan to help them get the money, the seed capital, if you mm -hmm. will, to get started doing this thing. Okay. So the real question is how do we pay for it? So most of the time that first step is a pre-approval. So we set you up with a lender mm -hmm. and then which lender you go to is determined by what kind of investment you're going to make. So if you want to flip a house, then the most likely scenario is let's find you a commercial lender or a construction lender that will do a more of a short-term loan, but the fees are lower up front. Mm -hmm. uh, maybe a little bit more interest rate, but those lower fees up front make it a more advantageous loan for you mm -hmm. because you're not going to own the house for 20 years. You're going to own the house right. for six months or three months or a year. Sure. So you want that low cost option up front. If you're going to buy a rental house, we would probably start you going the long-term route, go get a traditional mortgage that you go put 25% down, but then you get that low rate that is fixed for the entirety of the loan. So if you okay. want to buy a, a long-term rental, then we would send you to the mortgage lender. So it really depends if you're in a situation, and this may not be you, but just for those that are listening, if you're in a situation where you don't have any money, the first step is let's go find you a private partner, right? Somebody who you know that has money that can be the down payment guy or or pay cash for it and you just borrow the money from him. I've got a friend that's done that recently who partnered up with a guy who had the money so that he could learn the flipping business so that when he goes and flips that first house, now he has the seed money to go buy one of those long-term sure. hold investments. I have, a, I have a question about that. So are there... Are there available avenues for someone who would want to seek out some type of uh, uh, private lender? Or do you just have to like go to the farm and set up a PowerPoint presentation on the green of whole nine or something like that? That would be awesome. I have not tried that approach. But I'm going to have to work that into my repertoire. You never um, know. The, the first thing I tell people is you probably know somebody with money. It's most people think they don't. And then we talk about it for about 10 minutes. They're like, oh, yeah, I do know that guy or I do right. know that lady. Um, so it, it does come to you when you start thinking about it and looking at it. So you always start with friends and family. If you don't do that, then um, you can certainly go look for a partner. Um, you can go to websites and forums. Biggerpockets.com has a very active real estate investing community. Cool. And so just getting involved in there and plugging in there and asking questions and replying to other people's posts in the forums and that kind of thing, you'll eventually get to know somebody. There are local meetups all over the place um, that Bigger Pockets puts on, but then just in general, real estate investors have meetups. There's one that meets at Applebee's on, I think it's like the second Tuesday of the month or something. So you go to that room and you say, hey, I, I want to be an investor. I don't have any money and I want to partner with somebody who's done this before. The money guys in the room will be like, hey, I don't have the time to go roam around this town and, and figure out who owns these vacant properties that the grass is knee high. But but I'd love for you to do that. And that will give you a cut, you know, 20 percent, 30 percent. Your first deal, you just want to learn how it works. And if you make money on it, great. If you don't, it's an unpaid internship. You know, so there's really no lose for you if you can find the other guy with money sure. to go back to one of your questions earlier, as far as condos go. I personally think 
the easiest investment if you're going to flip a house would be something that needs flooring, paint, appliances, and countertops. There are enough of those out there that you can find one of those deals that you may make enough margin on to fund the next one. Mm-hmm. You're not going to make a, a, an amount that is staggering, but it's at least a way for you to get a simple flip to go do that without any structural issues, without any HOAs to deal with. If you right. just go get a single family house that needs that kind of cosmetic level of um, touch up good place to start because you learn so much in the process without really risking a ton of uh, money the next thing i would say is if you're going to go to a long-term rental i personally like single family ranches so one level Mm -hmm. there's no plumbing upstairs that could leak and cause a a big problem downstairs right Um, and i also like somewhere between 900 square feet and 1500 square feet i do that because the cost to renovate when one tenant moves out and another tenant moves in if you've got a 3,000 square foot house, there's a lot more money to sink into that thing. A lot to of fix it. punch. That's right. Yeah. <laughs> so, so you want. We're moving out. <laughs> yeah. We want to find things that if you have to replace every bit of flooring in a 900 square foot house, that's really cheap compared to every bit of flooring in a 3,500 square foot house. Right. right? So, so I like those small single family level homes. The, the problem or the issue that I've seen with the condo association is you have no control over those expenses. If you own a condo in an eight unit complex mm-hmm. and seven people want a new roof, you're getting a new roof. If five people want a new roof and three don't, you're still getting a new roof, right? Oh. So, so you can get into a situation where all of your profit from that year could be down the drain because you helped them buy a new roof. Right? Oh, yeah, I don't like that. Yeah. So, <laughs> so when you own the house and you own a single family house and you own the yard, that is totally up to you, right? Okay. Minus the insurance and the taxes, which taxes and insurance may fluctuate a little, but not nearly as much as an HOA fluctuates. Sure. An HOA may say our, our fees are $120 a month. Well, that's all fine and good, but then they have a special assessment where you pay $5,000. Well, that could wipe out your, your profit for two that. years. Okay. Yeah. So... Those kinds of things happen with condos. So I would say the single family house is the best investment. Another reason that I like it is because with all the things that have happened over the last couple of years with pandemic and I don't want to be within six feet of you. And, and then there's the civil unrest piece that's going on. And Mm -hmm. uh, you said you were in Oregon. So Portland was a little bit of a scary place there for a few months, right? If you were downtown Portland, it's an interesting place to drive through the, um, um, what did they call that place? The the Chad or the Chaz or something? The autonomous zone where they like took over the downtown. You know what I'm talking about? I'm not about? sure. No. So I don't know. For like three or four weeks, there was a little place, and I think it was in it was either Seattle or Portland. You know, we're from the it's southeast. The it's all the same place, right? The Pacific Northwest. <laughs> it's all one place. Uh, no, but but somewhere in one of those little downtowns, there was this zone, like a 15 block radius, where it was a central autonomous zone where the police were not allowed in and the ambulances were not allowed in. And this group of people just kind of set up their own little mini government inside of this three to four street radius each direction. And it lasted for about three weeks until they needed the cops or something, you know, (laughs) Oh wait, you can come in for this. And then just kind of, (laughs) we decided we need you. Yeah. It just kind of imploded. But anyway, so with those kinds of things happening around the world and, and the riots and all that kind of stuff, people just want their own space. They don't want to ride an elevator with somebody that's coughing, right? right? They don't want to, they don't want to hear the noise from the neighbor next door. And, you know, they may want to build a garden, have a chicken, whatever, right. you know, grow their own eggs. That's been a thing that's been going on lately. So 
the single family house with a half acre lot, you can have some raised bed gardens back there. You know, you can have a little chicken coop. So those kinds of things are, are more attractive to the tenant today than they ever were before. Another thing, sure. pets, pets have become much more popular in the last 20 years than they were when I first started. When I first started, almost no tenants had pets. And I bought my first rental property in December of 2000. Um, so I've been at this a little while, but today it's almost like I can't find a tenant that doesn't have some sort of pet, right. a cat, a dog, and a people fish, get so tore up a about bird. It too. They get so tore up about it because they complain that nobody will let them have their pets. Yeah. But so, then you go to the house and then you see why the pet, what the pets did. And it makes sense. So I, I learned that lesson somewhere in 2005 or six, I rented a condo to a guy that had a chihuahua. So in my head, I think, you know, how big is a chihuahua, right? It's seven pounds. Like, how much damage can it do? Every piece of baseboard in that condo, every piece had been chewed. I, there was not a piece of baseboard in the whole house. He had, he had nothing but time. It was when you're in the HVAC system. <laughs> it was through the vents, man. It was crazy how much damage that little bitty seven-pound dog did. Yeah. And he only lived there for years, so I had to replace all the trim in the house. So it was that point forward. I'm like, no pets. Sorry. So now I'm getting to the point where I'm like, maybe I have to start allowing pets again because so many people have. Have you not started that yet? Not yet. There have been a few that have kind of snuck in. Yeah, we've got a, a unit that we're actually selling here in a couple of weeks that um, didn't have a pet when they moved in. But now there are two pit bulls that live inside the house. Oh, good. Yes, yeah, that one's going to be exciting <laughs> to do, fix. Do, you, do your leases have a uh, like a whatever pet penalty like if you yes them. you are subject to eviction if i find a pet you're gone period in the story thanks for it every time if this one weren't under contract probably <laughs> but it's under contract to sell i'm like well you know the the buyer obviously knows the pets there they did an inspection right the dogs didn't let them in right. <laughs> so then we then chained the dog up so yeah I, I try to stay away from pets for that reason they're they're costly sure um, but single family house is the way to go what's your next question would you suggest um, paying that off as quickly as possible before I acquire my second one? Mm. Or would you say to pay it off to a certain extent and then maybe leverage the equity to purchase a second one? Like how, what is the balance of like debt burden versus like rental income? Cause at any There's point. There's two schools of thought on that. Wouldn't you say okay. there's the conservative folk who are pay everything off cash, cash, cash. And then there's, Folks, which you're probably more along the lines of using leverage to to scale up. There are definitely two distinct schools of thought. Um, I would think that I'm in the middle of them, actually. Um, and I think this is a great time to give you the disclaimer. We are not financial advisors. Please consult your own financial advisor, your I'm own CPA. I'm a financial CPA. advisor, actually. <laughs> <laughs> consult your own CPA. Consult your own attorney. We do not give financial advice on this channel. Um, financial advisor who said, I don't know what crypto is. I just... <laughs> I just kind of direct all your again. questions to me. <laughs> <laughs> so there, there is the Dave Ramsey style, which is cash for everything and don't finance anything. Mm -hmm. There is the uh, other school of thought that is leverage it as high and as much as you can. And so I'm probably in the middle. So okay. I, at this point, would say that I feel comfortable somewhere around 50 to 60% loan to value on most of my portfolio. I do have a couple of paid off um, homes that I have lines of credit against. So if I want to go flip a house, I use one of those lines of credit to go okay. buy the house and flip it. Um, it. It really depends on what your goals are. If your goal is to 
And, and this is really one of the first questions I ask any investor I meet with. Okay, tell me what your goals are. Yeah, do you want to be a millionaire by the time you're 30? Well, how old are you? Uh, 34. Okay, so that's not going to work. Ship sailed. <laughs> <laughs> so do you want to be a millionaire by the time you're 40, right? Sure. So you've got six years. If that's your goal, you're going to require leverage. You, you likely can't get there unless Dogecoin goes to the moon. Right. <laughs> so through real estate, the only way to get you there is highly leveraged. Um, so you're going to be highly leveraged from 34 to 40. But when you get there, your goals may have changed and we may say, okay, now we're going to go 50% leverage so that we can now expand this portfolio and, and do some different things with it. Maybe okay. you're married and your kids and you want to buy a house. And so we, <laughs> maybe we then um, leverage that property to then go buy the house, the primary residence. Okay. So it really just depends with the volatility that we've had in real estate in the last 15 years. There are moments when a 90% leverage would have bankrupt you because you couldn't have gotten loans past that 90% mark. And so you would have ran out of money. There are also times when 90% leverage would have been awesome because the market's gone up so much. Like the last couple of years, we've seen 18 and 20% increases. So in that environment, 90% leverage in 2019 would have caused you to be 65% leverage today. Right? So it really depends on the timing of the market, where the market is and what your goals are. Okay. Would you recommend a larger down payment or would you recommend just meeting what is necessary to avoid the, uh, what is the, the term for the insurance that you have to take? Uh, the, yeah, private mortgage insurance. Mm -hmm. If you go more than 80% loan to value on a house, you have to have PMI, which is private mortgage insurance. So anything less than 80%, you don't have to have that. So would you recommend a higher saving up for a higher down payment or acquiring the property um, as soon as I can and save, say I can save up 20% mm -hmm. and then get the, the property or would you recommend accumulating more money so that the return from the rent is, is higher? Mm -hmm. Does that make sense? So in your scenario where you have a pretty high paying job and you mm -hmm. have very few expenses in that scenario, I would try to get 20 to 25% down buy that investment, put it on a 30 year fixed rate, which today for an investor is somewhere around four and a half percent. So I would try to tie up that house at that four and a half percent rate for the next 30 years. There's a strong likelihood that the rent you get today will be lower than the rent you get throughout the course of that loan. So your okay. payment, primarily that property, that um, principal and interest mm -hmm. will likely stay the same, right? It's a fixed rate. So that principal and interest stays the same. A little bit of fluctuation in taxes and insurance. So that, that cost goes up a little bit, but the rent for the whole place will outpace the taxes and insurance costs that rises okay. along the way. And so when you lock that in, the cash flow that you lock in on the front end, 250 a month, let's say, that grows over time because rents go up and the mortgage stays the same. So I would try to lock in as many of those as you can. Okay. In today's environment, you can buy 10 houses and get 10 30-year fixed-rate mortgages through the conventional method or um, the secondary market mortgages, which is where Fannie Mae and Freddie Mac are. So when you hear the 30-year fixed-rate mortgage, that's what they're talking about, the secondary market. Okay. There are other lenders that will do 30-year uh, fixed-rate, but it's a much higher rate. That 45 is 
you fit inside the box of Fannie Mae and Freddie Mac, the big mortgage giants that kind of underwrite all these loans. Mm -hmm. So as long as you fit in that box, you get low rates because they put all of those loans together and sell them as securities on the stock market called mortgage-backed securities. So anyway, that's probably a deep dive into one little section that doesn't make sense for most folks. But just know that if you can lock in that rate at four and a half, that's way better than locking in a rate at seven. Okay. So, so get 10 of those. Then once you have 10 of those, you're going to be forced to go to non-qualified mortgage or non-QM or a commercial lender. Um, we work with Brad Ramsey at First National Community Bank. Um, we work with, gosh, several others, Tennessee Valley Federal Credit Union. There's several of those types of lenders we work with. And they have good products. It's just not as attractive as that 30-year fixed at 4%. Sure. Right? What was the, uh, whenever you were first starting, what was that rate for investors? <laughs> that four and a half back yeah, then? The, the four and a half back then. I remember actually a primary residence I bought in 2006. So I bought it um, through a construction loan. So that construction loan rate was eight and a half percent. And when I finished the construction phase of that property, I refinanced it. And I was a mortgage broker at the time. So I had all the inside strings to pull, right? Mm -hmm. So I locked it at 6% and thought I stole it. Like, I mean, I felt so good about my 6% rate. So that was 2006. Yeah. I can't remember what the rate was in 2002, but it was probably six or seven, I would say. Right. Yeah. So it's a good time. It's, it's Historically, the yeah. average is somewhere between seven and a half and eight. Mm -hmm. So if you look at mortgage rates over the last 70 years, the average of all that is somewhere between seven and a half and eight percent. So yes, it is ridiculously low to think that you can lock it in at four. If you think about it this way, the interest rate that you're paying on that mortgage is four and a half percent. The inflation rate that was announced in December is seven point nine percent. So you essentially got paid to get that money, right? If you if you took that cash and you sat on it, seven point nine percent of that cash mm -hmm. went away. Like you just threw it away. If you got that interest rate of four and a half percent, that's under the the inflation rate. So mm -hmm. it's almost like it's free money. Right. So I really think it's a good idea to lock it in as sure. soon as you can and as many of them as you can. Um, about the commercial uh, the commercial loan, I was reading that that's based on the amount of income that is generated by the property. Is that mm -hmm. accurate? Mm -hmm. Most of the commercial lenders, they're still going to check your credit. You're still going to personally guarantee this loan, this commercial loan. Mm -hmm. Uh, until you get to the size that they no longer require your personal guarantee. When, you're, when your company then owns enough or, or has enough money in the bank, then they don't need your personal guarantee anymore because your company is worth so much. Right? But okay. until you get to that point, and that's a long way down the road. I've been doing this for 20 years. I'm nowhere close to that level. So mm -hmm. you got to personally guarantee it. So they're still going to check your credit. They're still going to check your income. They're still going to make sure you can afford this. Over time, though, those commercial guys understand that you now have a track record. And so they won't loan you a million dollars day one because they don't know if you can actually manage it. Right. They will look at your finances and say, OK, you've got good credit. You've got good income. You can afford this thing. Even if you think it's going to rent for a thousand bucks a month and it only rents for seven hundred, you make enough income that we know you can make up that difference. So we're going to loan you the money anyway. So it's almost like they do a stress test of your own finances and they say, OK, if Things were to change, and this guy lost 20% of his income. Could he still afford it? Yes. Okay. If the interest rate goes up by 2%, could he still afford it? Yes. Okay, well, then we'll loan him the money. Okay. So they stress test you as an individual. Now, once you have four or five or six of these things, they start counting that income because it shows up on your tax return. And so when you're 
income starts showing up on your tax return from all these rentals. Now they look at it and go, oh, well, he's got three years worth of tax returns that show he can collect rental income. He's good at this job. We're going to now not stress test him so hard. Then at some point you'll get to the point where they bring up your name in loan committee and they're like, okay, yeah, it's good. Go on. Like they just, they know because you've done so many <laughs> loans with them that they're like, yes, he's paid us every single time. We're good. So, um, since my job has me uh, working various locations mm -hmm. that are probably not located around where my rental properties would be, mm -hmm. um, is there some type of management that could be acquired like for a fee or something like mm -hmm. that where I can pay someone else to take care of, of the property? Yes. Um, there are property managers all over the place. Um, we have a small minority stake in one of them called Connection Rentals. Mm -hmm. That's the one here locally in Dalton. My buddy Aaron David runs that one, and he is the primary owner of it. Like I said, I have a very small stake in it. But um, So the way he works is he charges 8% of the revenue. So anything that comes in, $1,000, he charges 8% of that. Right? Mm -hmm. And then on top of that, there are usually some fees that are involved in placing a tenant or doing an inspection for you or whatever it may be. So at the end of the year, my first six months doing it with him where he managed all of my properties, we analyzed it all. It was 9.9%. .9%. So basically tell yourself it's 10% of the revenue that comes in. So if you made $1,000, you're only going to collect 900 because the management's going to cost totally you. totally worthy. Oh, for sure. Yeah. Absolutely. Yeah, it only works if you have 100 doors. You know, if, if you can manage 100 doors, then that revenue model works. But anything less than that, and it's very hard to make it make money. You know, so those right. property management companies, you'll see a lot of them have five, 600 doors, 1,000 doors. That's how they make it is that volume. Because right. as you can imagine, you hope that you don't have a call every time you go home and there's a, a leak or there's something right. going on with the place that you're renting because sure. you're traveling all over the world. So in essence, it's not a busy job to have one and you only get 90 bucks for it, right? But if you have 100 of them, there's literally something to do every day. Sure. <laughs> you know, there's okay. going to be something to break every day. So, mm -hmm. so that's how that model works. 10% of the revenue goes away. The other thing that if we're talking about rentals, um, and I'm happy to share it here as well, there are other costs that are involved. So what I have come to realize is about half of the revenue gets eaten up or disappears before it gets to you. So the free cash flow on $1,000 is really $500. So you have that rental, um, that management agreement, right? That's where the first 100 come from. $100 goes away to the management company. There's usually about 5% of that money that doesn't get collected. Whether that's, um, hey, there was something that went on with the house and we couldn't live in it, so we had to go move for two weeks while you fixed it, or somebody moved out and somebody else could <clears throat> excuse me, couldn't move in until two weeks later. So you missed that two weeks. Right. There's always about 5% of the revenue that you just can't collect. Maybe you have to evict somebody. That whole process takes a month. So anyway, over the course of time, I have found that about 5% of the money doesn't get collected. So that's another 50 bucks that comes off, right? So we're down to 850. And when I say 5%, that's 5% of the revenue. You know, the property management, 10% of the revenue that gets generated. So then you have repairs. That's usually somewhere around 15%. So that's you know another 150 bucks that comes off that. There are just things that break. Water heaters leak, faucets leak. You got to replace the flooring at some point. So anyway, 150 bucks comes off of that. What are we down to? 700 now. Mm -hmm. Then we have taxes and insurance that you have to have. And so taxes and insurance around 12%, 15% or so. So just call it another 150 bucks. You're down to 550 now. 
inevitably there's another 5% that I can't account for. <laughs> and, <laughs> and that may be, oh, the, the repairs on this house was 20, you know, and, and I really thought it was going to be, you know, 15 for this house or, you know, the property management on this one cost more because he had to do three inspections for whatever reason. There may be something that happened that caused the property management to cost more on this particular house. Over the course of the whole portfolio of 30 houses, then you, those averages start to work out. So somewhere around 50 to 55% of the revenue that comes in actually goes in your pocket. Now, if okay. you're going to leverage it, you got a mortgage to pay out of that, right? So in that instance, if you... My own rules, if I make $150 per door after mortgage and all those other things I just mentioned, to me, that's a good investment for a couple reasons. For you in particular, the tax deduction that you get for the depreciation of the house, if the house is worth $100,000, you get 127th of that house's value depreciated on your tax return. So if you made $100,000 and that, let's say that depreciation was $2,700. You don't pay taxes on $100,000. You pay taxes on 97300 right? So your tax cost goes down. So you owe taxes, less taxes. So you get that depreciation from it. You get the interest deduction from it. So if you borrowed money on it, whatever you paid in interest also gets deducted from your income. So so as you cool. get these deductions, you get that 150 bucks a month. So it's 1800 bucks a year. Okay, that's pretty good. That pays for... A trip to Bend, Oregon, or whatever, you know. So, so you get that money, you get the actual cash flow, but then you also get the depreciation. You also get the interest deduction, and the tenant is actually paying down the note. So, right. borrowed a hundred thousand on it. The tenant's paying that down. So, over the next twenty-five years or however long you have this note, it actually gets paid off. You still own the whole asset. So, there's a whole bunch of reasons why it makes sense to go the rental route. Sure. Say like, <clears throat> say I'm off somewhere working, mm-hmm. and uh, I have the the management company is kind of the the middleman in between the tenant and myself. Mm-hmm. And uh, say the tenant calls about something, we'll say it's like an exposed wire on the hot water heater or something like that. Mm-hmm. And uh, the management company doesn't fix it promptly. And then we'll say like little little Jimmy Jim John or something mm-hmm. like that goes up and <laughs> grabs a fork out of the fork <laughs> out of the fork drawer. <laughs> And he he goes over there and he 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 sticks it right to it, and <laughs> blows himself up. Yeah. So, if if that were to occur, very specific. Like who <laughs> who would who would who would incur the liability of that? Would it be the 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 owner of the house? Would it be the the management company? Would it be you know Triple J's mom for drinking paint thinner when he was in the womb? Or <laughs> Would it be something that would be handled so, in like a, in a, like a court of law? Like what what would what would occur? So particular the direct instance? answer to that last question: Yes, it probably would be handled in a court of law if, uh, <laughs> if Jimmy John. We'll handle this in the yard. So so I gotta ask though: Does Jimmy John is he related to the guy that owns the? Deli? Yeah, it's it's the it's, it's, it's the son of the, the, the of the, the grandson the mom. of yeah, Jimmy just, John's the deli. Oh yeah. <laughs> So it's uh, not going to be an heir anytime soon. Oh, I tell you. All right. So there is, I think the question that you're asking is negligence. Mm-hmm. Who's at fault? Right. Right. So in the scenario you just described, it sounds like there's a lot of negligence that goes around. Sure. Um, <laughs> so 
insurance would be key in all of those instances in this hypothetical situation in which we are not giving attorney advice here, right? That so is correct. Let's go talk to your attorney. In that hypothetical scenario, the first step, in, in Aaron's process at least, if there's a, a repair that needs to get done, the first step is they fill out this uh, repair request form, right? Did they do that right? If they didn't do that right, then it's the tenant's negligence okay. for not following orders, right? If they texted him, that's not what the lease says. The lease says you have to fill out this repair request form. And here's okay. the here's the online portal to do it. It's super easy. You can do it from your phone. For your phone. It's super easy. Okay. So that's the first level of negligence. So the property manager's attorney is going to say, oh, well, the tenant didn't do the thing right. The, then they'll also say, well, the tenant needs to watch their children better. Like there's some negligence there, right? Sure. So. So, hey, let's not let Jimmy John go into the utility closet, right? So there's that. And then the tenant's lawyer is going to say, well, the property manager was at fault because they did the online portal thing and, and they told you on September the 10th and and you didn't respond, property management company, until September 24th. And so little Jimmy John happened on the 21st. So it's obviously your fault. So there is a level of care that the property manager has to have to, to do this and to um, make sure he's not found negligible. Sure. You, as the property owner, you have home, not homeowner's insurance, but you have a landlord policy of insurance that kind of protects these types of things. Mm -hmm. And so when you get your insurance policy, you notify your insurance policy, hey, I, I am signing a lease with this property management, or I'm signing a management lease with this property management company, they're going to then turn around and sign a lease with this tenant. So the tenant doesn't actually know you and doesn't get your phone number, doesn't even have contact to you. Now, that tenant's attorney is probably going to look on the tax record and be like, oh, I see who owns this. It's Austin. Right? So we're going to sue Austin. So you're going to get named in the in the lawsuit, but your insurance company is likely going to step in and be like, hey, we're taking this over because they're suing us, your insurance company. Okay whole bunch of people along the way everybody goes to court and then the judge or jury decides who was actually negligent have you ever had a jimmy john scenario oh, i can't discuss that on the podcast no i'm kidding yeah, yeah. I, I personally have not had a jimmy john situation like that okay um i have lucky been, i have been to court yeah let's knock on some wood somewhere i don't know um I hope that's wood Yes, I would say I've been to court several times, and um, negligence has always been found somewhere else. So. Awesome. Um, we'll give it. We'll give it one more. Give us your okay. best one. All right. Uh, one more. He's got so. four pages here. That's <laughs> okay. Um, so I guess I'll ask: uh, At what point, or if ever, would you move on to um, like a? duplex or quadplex type situation if you were to start with a single family home mm -hmm. um i read that you have to have a commercial loan on anything greater than four units is that oh, correct that is true and so would you at what point would you move on to something maybe a little bit more complex i guess mm -hmm. if that would be the correct word to use to describe that there are people who do it right out of the gate. I mean, there are definitely people that you hear on the Bigger Pockets podcast who start with a 27-unit apartment complex. And so there is a different skill set that comes with that. There are certainly economies of scale that make it 
easier in one respect. Mm-hmm. You know, if you've got, if you start with a 68 unit apartment complex, you've got enough for a property manager that works for you individually and sure. just handles that apartment complex, right? So in a 68 unit situation, there's probably only three roofs you have to do. If you had, if you had 68 single family houses, you got 68 different roofs you got to fix, right? right? So, so there are some economies of scale there. I would say for me personally, the first house I bought was a single family house. The second house was a single family house. The third structure I bought was a quadplex. The fourth was a triplex. The fifth was a duplex. And so I stayed in that one to four range pretty much the whole time. I did buy an eight unit complex with a partner that we then split up into individual units and sold them off or sold some of them off individually and kept some. So it really goes back to that first question of what is your goal? If your goal is I want a hundred doors by the time I'm 40 years old, we're probably going to need to go get some quads. I don't know that you ever actually have to go get more than quads to reach a hundred units. If your goal is a thousand units by the time you're 45, we probably do have to buy apartment complexes. Right. And don't you too, Michael, um, correct me if I'm wrong, exit strategy, big deal for you. And you'd rather be selling a single family house than a yes. quad or whatever. So, so for me, I am, Corey would not believe this when I say this statement, but I'm pretty risk averse. <laughs> so I try to think about the risk that I'm taking on here. Um, when I was 25, I was less risk averse. I, I would take a lot more risks at 25 than I sure. will at 45. That played out this past weekend on the snowboard slopes. I, I <laughs> took a lot less risk when I was going this past week than I did the decade before. Um, so, yes, I would say it is much easier to get out of a four unit or less because there's a bigger buyer pool. If you can go get 30-year money at 3.5% down, because mm-hmm. that's what an FHA loan is, you can buy a four unit FHA and get three and a half percent down and live for free basically. Cause the other three tenants are paying for your mortgage. So I can find buyers for that a lot easier than I can find that fifth unit, that fifth unit. Now you gotta have a commercial loan. So now you either have to have collateral, you have to have a free and clear house somewhere that they will let you pull that money out so that you can put the down payment down. But you really need to meet the federal guidelines. You're going to need 20% down to get that commercial loan. Okay. And that fifth unit makes it super hard and makes the buyer pool shrink significantly. I also like single family more than quads just because the entire buyer pool is available for a single family and even more so than condos. There's a much larger buyer pool for single family houses than there are condos. So it's another reason that single family house is the the best for me. Now it also has the least return. You likely can get a better return on investment on a four unit than you can a one unit. Again, goes back to the economies of scale, the cost that you have in it, that kind of thing. But I just prefer that that exit strategy being an easy thing to accomplish. Sure. Yeah, to Corey's point. Certain level of to safety that comes with that. Not only is the buyer pool bigger for the single family homes, but think about the mindset of someone shopping for a regular old house versus someone looking to buy some apartments. The apartment person is, you know, strictly numbers, they're looking for a good deal. Somebody buying a house, I mean if you're gonna move your family in there, it might be like an emotional decision. Oh, we're imagining our you know, we could put the furniture here in this way and have our life here. And sure. if you're buying emotionally then it's probably a better situation for you okay as the seller awesome so austin you're going to acquire 10 units this year yeah i was thinking like this week maybe um, <laughs> end of the week yeah, yeah. so <laughs> by tomorrow because it's thursday i can put you in six tomorrow <laughs> right um now i think uh 
I would like to, uh, if I can, uh, at you least can. at least one a year, two maybe. Um, so I, you want to go slow? Well, I would like to. <laughs> I, I think I would be more comfortable with, uh, and this may just may just have to talk me out of this mindset of um, having them more paid off mm-hmm. each time. Uh, before like maybe they set like a threshold and then acquire another one or something like that and mm-hmm. kind of like see what it feels like mm-hmm. before I push the limits mm-hmm. just based on what someone else is telling me. I guess mm-hmm. it's uh, kind of like one of those things you need to, to, to see for yourself. Mm-hmm. Right. And uh, but yeah, this I think this is probably the, the answer. I would like to do the, the rental property thing. I'm, I'm not uh, flipping um, I would rather have something that kind of sets me up long term mm-hmm. as like a means of passive income mm-hmm. than having, you know, flip and then I have this amount of money and then, you know, turn that into something else and just generating Plus uh, you're wealth at, that at way. a distance too. It's hard to, as I figured out recently, <laughs> hard to flip a house even when you live in the town where it is happening. Right. So, I imagine I, so yeah, I wouldn't, I wouldn't want to be out of state trying to do that. True. So let's buy one this year. Yeah. Let's do it. Pinky promise. <laughs> oh, oh, the pinky promise. That's hilarious. <laughs> so, yeah, it comes down to what is your goal? Is it income or is it wealth? Is it money now or is it setting my life up for a different scenario? Setting different. my life up. Yeah, definitely. Yeah. So, uh, I mean, I started with one. I bought my first house in December of 2000. I bought my second house in June of 2001. I bought the quadplex in maybe August of 2003. So it, it took me a while. I, I did not just blow it out of the gate right, out, right from the beginning. Then I bought a triplex while I was under contract for the quadplex. So I went one, one, seven, <laughs> you know, and then, and then I actually slowed down after the seven because the market started shifting and, and value started changing and the, the rates were still high enough that affordability was starting to be a problem. And so, so you got to pay attention to all those things, you know, as, and this is going to sound very self-serving, but hear me out as you go down this journey, it is really important that you surround yourself with professionals that know what's going on and that understand the market, sure. not just the housing market, but the investment housing market. There are, there are realtors who specialize in different areas. Uh, there's a realtor with Keller Williams named Jay Robinson up in Chattanooga who specializes in luxury. If you're not selling more than a $500,000 house, you're probably not going to get stalked on. <laughs> now, now, he may take it from friends of his or whatever, but but typically his average sale price is seven eighty or something like that. So, so wow. he specializes in that spot, right? I could bring Jay to Dalton right now and show him my entire portfolio, and he probably wouldn't want to get out of the truck. Like, it's just not what he does, right? And so there's just a difference. So you need to work with someone who understands the market. And... And you being in Oregon or wherever, you may not want to invest in Dalton. You may decide to invest somewhere else. Wherever you go, make sure there's a realtor that you're working with that understands the investment landscape of that area. I can do you no good in Savannah. I have a Georgia license. I can sell you a house in Savannah. And there are agents that do. Mm -hmm. Just be sure that whoever you're working with knows the area in which they are helping you buy a place. Because it's different from town to town. Well, I think that's a good uh, place to wrap this thing up. Makes sense. So, Austin, thank you for coming and asking your questions. It's my pleasure. Thank you for having me. And I hope uh, you learned something. And we are absolutely going to buy at least one house this year. 
It's been settled. I saw the Peaky Promise happen. <laughs> so did they. It's legit. <laughs> Everybody saw it. All million of our subscribers. We're 52. <laughs> We're 52. All right. See ya. Goodbye. All right.